Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Nestled on a bluff, overlooking the mighty Mississippi River, St. Francisville claims to be the second oldest town in the state of Louisiana. It began as a burial ground for the Spanish Capuchins, a monastic order that was given a land grant to build their monastery here near the end of the 18th century. Like many of the frontier settlements along the Mississippi River, St. Francisville is the product of a vibrant cultural mix, shaped by the influences of French and Spanish colonial rule, 19th century Americanization, and an economy based on the exploitation of African people. St. Francisville is in the heart of Louisiana's plantation country, which prior to the Civil War was home to more than half of America's millionaires who resided in the elaborate mansions that lined the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Natchez. But one of the most well-known of these historic landmarks is the Myrtle's Plantation. Unfortunately, this distinction isn't just due to its beauty and charm, but rather because many believe that the grandiose Creole plantation is quite possibly the most haunted house in America. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. The Myrtle's Plantation was built by General David Bradford 
1796. He was a prominent lawyer, businessman, and the deputy attorney general of Washington County, Pennsylvania. But in 1794, Bradford was forced to flee his home. Known to many as Whiskey Dave, General Bradford was wanted for treason for his role in the Whiskey Rebellion, an insurrection by the people of Western Pennsylvania against the new federal government of the United States. Tensions began in 1791 when a high excise tax was placed on whiskey. Many farmers of the region distilled the spirit from their surplus grain as an additional source of revenue and trade. But this new federal tax would cut directly into their profit. Anger ensued and a series of other grievances eventually erupted into violence, resulting in President George Washington deploying 13,000 militiamen to suppress the insurgency in 1794. An insurgency led by many of the same veterans who had fought for American freedom in the Revolutionary War. Legend has it, President Washington personally placed a price on Whiskey Dave's head, forcing the Pennsylvanian attorney to flee his home. So Bradford headed south and ended up in the Spanish territory of Florida, just east of the Mississippi River in a region known as Bayou Serra, which today would be considered a part of Louisiana. Bradford then purchased 650 acres of land and began construction on a simple eight-room cottage that he would name Laurel Grove. Not long after, his wife Elizabeth and five children joined him, and despite receiving a presidential pardon in 1799, Bradford stayed in Louisiana, living the life of a wealthy planner for the remainder of his days. When Bradford passed away, in 1808, his widow Elizabeth took over Laurel Grove for several years, eventually hiring her son-in-law, Clark Woodruff, to run the operations. Clark had arrived in Bayou Serra around 1810 after leaving his boyhood home in Connecticut to seek fortune in the United States' newly acquired territory. Then, after fighting alongside Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans, Woodruff married Sarah Matilda Bradford and began studying law. He and Sarah had three children soon after, Cornelia, James, and Mary Octavia. Unfortunately, tragedy was right around the corner. Tragedy that has become the basis for one of the most infamous hauntings this historic estate. Legend has it that Clark Woodruff took a romantic interest in 
and one of the Bradford family's enslaved girls. Her name was Chloe, and she was an attractive teenage girl of mixed race. In order to keep her close, Woodruff removed her from her work in the fields and brought her into the home to serve as one of the family's house slaves, cooking dinners, cleaning laundry, helping take care of the children, and of course, serving Woodruff as his concubine. But eventually, for reasons unknown, his interest began to wane. As a result, Chloe became paranoid and feared his disinterest would cost her the many privileges she'd gained. But then one day, Woodruff caught Chloe eavesdropping on him, her ear pressed against the door to his office as he did his business. He was furious, and in punishment, the man cut off Chloe's ear and sent her back to work in the kitchen. To hide her scars, Chloe began to wear a green turban, a turban that many have claimed her ghostly apparition still wears today. But in life, Chloe was still desperate to win back Woodruff's attention and secretly made a plan. In her book, The Haunting of Louisiana, author and documentarian Barbara Sillery wrote of the tale as told by the Myrtle's current owner. In the gleaming dining room of the main house, preparations were at a peak to celebrate the ninth birthday of the Woodruff's eldest daughter. With her bloodied head wrapped in a turban, Chloe snuck into the kitchen. Secretly, she concocted a special cake. In the batter, she mixed the juices from the oleander leaf. Chloe knew small doses of this poison would make everyone ill. Her plan was to step in and magically administer a cure. Chloe believed the grateful Woodruffs would then see her as a powerful voodoo priestess, and she would be allowed to resume her former standing in the home. Tragically, Chloe's plan backfired, and the cake's ingredients proved fatal. According to legend, two of the children and their mother, Sarah Matilda, were dead within hours. So Chloe fled the home in fear and admitted the accidental murder to her fellow slaves, hoping that they'd protect her. But instead, they turned on her afraid that they would be accomplices in the same crime. So Chloe was hanged by them, and her dead body flung into the nearby Mississippi River. Today, visitors to the Myrtles, reportedly haunted by a spirit that many believe could be Chloe, a ghostly apparition of a young woman dressed in antebellum clothing has appeared in numerous photographs over the decades and has been well documented by many of the property's owners and visitors.
Unfortunately, history is not in total agreement with this salacious tale. Sarah Matilda Woodruff and her children did not all die at the same time, as this legend suggests. According to West Feliciana Parish Records, Sarah passed on July 15, 1823. Her children, James and Cornelia, did not follow her to the grave for another year, and even then, they perished a month apart. Furthermore, Clark and Sarah's daughter, Mary Octavia, lived well into her 60s. Burial records also indicate that the cause of the deaths of Sarah and her children was not poison at all, but rather yellow fever, a horrendous viral disease spread by infected mosquitoes that flourished in the swamps and bayous of Louisiana. Annual outbreaks were common in the mid-19th century, taking tens of thousands of lives a year and affecting families of all genders, age, size, and wealth. While these facts dispute the authenticity of the legend of Chloe, whose own name does not appear on any of the family records, the premature deaths of Sarah and the children could still account for some of the many other purported hauntings at the Myrtles today. Mirrors have long had a reputation for connecting the living and the dead, and that is no different at the Myrtles, where the large ornate parlor mirror displayed in the foyer of the home is believed to be haunted by the apparition of the Woodruffs who died there. Proprietors and visitors alike have long reported sightings of spirits inside the two-century-old mirror. Most notably are the eerie appearances of handprints and drip marks that seem to come from inside the mirror itself. No amount of cleaning has been successful in fixing this seemingly mundane issue, so several owners have even replaced the glass but to no avail, the marks return. While it is certainly possible that the spirits of Sarah Woodruff and her young children are the culprit for these events, it is just as possible they're caused by one of the many other tragedies to take place here after the property changed hands. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In 1834, Clark Woodruff sold Laurel Grove to Ruffin Grace Sterling. Sterling already owned numerous plantations up and down the Mississippi River and planned to make this new purchase his family's primary residence. But first, he and his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb, began expanding the home, transforming what was then a cottage into the grandeur that can be seen today. It was the Sterlings who renamed the estate Myrtles after the beautiful, flowering crepe myrtle trees that flourished on the property. Unlike the Gothic Revival plantations, common in the south, the Myrtles has no massive columns or sweeping staircases. The home, both what was originally built as well as the Sterling's expansion, was designed in the style of Creole cottages. The expansion doubled the building's size to 22 rooms, featuring identical ladies and gentlemen's parlors, a formal dining and game room, as well as a beautiful foyer for the entranceway. Every aspect of the home was treated with ornate and meticulous detailing, from the elaborate cornices and ceiling medallions to the 300-pound chandelier and the foyer. But one of the most stunning and iconic features of the Myrtles is the 125-foot-long veranda that wraps around the entirety of the building. The cast-iron railing surrounding this veranda features an elaborate grape cluster design and would fit in seamlessly with the similarly detailed structures in the French Quarter of nearby New Orleans. But the Sterling family's renovation and expansion of the Laurel Grove Cottage was not just aesthetic. It is also the earliest evidence that an owner of the Myrtles may believe that spirits did in fact haunt the property. Locks were intentionally installed upside down in hopes of confusing any spirits attempting to gain entry, and the front door was decorated with an intricate 
hand-painted stained-glass window that features patterns of the French cross, a symbol intended to ward off evil. For two decades, the Sterlings enjoyed their new life in St. Francisville. But once again, tragedy struck. In 1854, Ruff and Sterling died from tuberculosis, or what at the time was known as consumption. So his widow Mary took over leadership of the family's vast holdings successfully running the business until she handed it over to her son-in-law, William Winter. Unfortunately, tragedy continued, and in 1861, three-year-old Kate Winter, daughter to William and Sarah, contracted yellow fever. This was the same terrible virus that took the lives of the Woodruff children but legend claims that this time, a local voodoo priestess named Cleo was summoned to the plantation to help save the poor girl. Cleo spent days in little Kate's bedroom, performing rituals and chanting, desperately trying to save Kate. But in the end, she was unsuccessful. Kate Winter died on January 29th, 1861. Now heartbroken and furious, William Winter blamed the loss of his daughter on Cleo and viciously had the voodoo practitioner hanged as retribution for her failed attempt to save Kate. Whether this violent outburst is legend or fact is unknown, but some have hypothesized that it is actually the spirit of Cleo who roams the plantation, not Chloe. Yet just like Chloe, no record of Cleo's actual existence have been found. Of course, the spirit of Kate is also believed to inhabit the bedroom where she died. The large four-poster bed where she took her last breath remains in the home to this day, and many have been witness to its haunting, claiming that the bed will intermittently rise into the air and shake violently as if possessed. Eerily, century-old gouges in the hardwood floor beneath the bed credibility to this claim. The same year that the Winter family endured the loss of their daughter Kate, the United States became embroiled in the Civil War. Only several days prior to the young girl's death in 1861, the state of Louisiana declared its independence and adopted an ordinance of secession. But 
both the Union and Confederate armies saw the advantages of controlling the Mississippi River. And as a result, many of Louisiana's plantations were placed directly in harm's way. At one point during the conflict, Union soldiers are believed to have ransacked the Myrtles. And despite the lack of records verifying this claim, some legends purport that at least three of them were killed on the property. Either way, the Civil War left the Winter family in dire financial straits. Then, in 1871, William Winter was shot and killed in the doorway of the Myrtles. Author Richard Southall described the event in his book, Haunted Plantations of the South. William was entertaining guests when an unidentified man on horseback came to the front of the house and called for him to come to the porch. William was uncertain who the man was, but the man called for William and said he had some business to talk about. Curious, William excused himself and walked to the porch to speak with the stranger. Without saying another word, the stranger shot William at close range and rode off. But Winter's death was not instant. After being shot, he stumbled back into the home in search of his wife, Sarah, dragging himself up the staircase to find her. But upon reaching the 17th step, he fell victim to his wounds, passing away in his wife's arms. William Drew Winter was then buried near his daughter Kate at the Grace Episcopal Church Cemetery in St. Francisville. The murder, which is the only one on the property to be historically documented, was never solved. In spite of their loss, the family remained at the Myrtles for more than a decade, till Mary Cobb, matriarch of the Sterling family, passed away, leaving the plantation strapped with enough debt to force her heirs to sell it. As a result, a string of new owners purchased and sold the property over the following years, and the land surrounding the home was divided. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, 
keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups, and trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000, and it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com slash bark. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Then, in 1970, the Myrtles was purchased by James and Francis Kermine Myers. The couple restored the home to the majesty that can still be seen and visited today, converting it into a bed and breakfast but it did not take long for them to begin believing that the Myrtles was in fact haunted. In 2005, Francis Kermine published a memoir aptly named The Myrtles Plantation, The True Story of America's Most Haunted Home. In it, she wrote, Ghosts and sightings at the Myrtles were almost a daily occurrence. Voices, footsteps, and the scent of perfume were common throughout the house. In the spring and fall, the ball seasons, you could sometimes hear parties going on. But if you tried to find the source of the merriment, it seemed to move. A servant carrying a candle made her way from room to room at night, tucking people in. A beautiful Indian maiden sat naked beside the pond. Two little girls, reportedly poisoned in 1824, romped and played outside, stopping occasionally to chat with an unsuspecting guest. An overseer, brutally murdered decades ago, confronted visitors and brusquely ordered them away. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Kermine also offers several explanations as to why the Myrtles is so haunted. 
one of which is that it, quote, sits on sacred Indian burial grounds. But according to some, the legends that have become so intertwined with the history of the Myrtles may well have been manufactured by Frances Kermine herself. Specifically, the most infamous ghost on the property, Chloe, who did not appear in lore until the publication of Kermine's memoir. American historian and Harvard professor Taya Miles explored the Myrtles' lore in her 2015 work, Tales from the Haunted South. She specifically states that it was Kermine who fabricated these stories for publicity. Stories that are nothing more than, quote, representations of brutality and submission rendered a spectacle. As a ghost, Chloe accrues characteristics that thicken her subjection and cultural memory. She's imagined as alternately embodying two of this nation's most prominent negative stereotypes of African-American women, the Jezebel and the Mammy. The Jezebel type, named for a North African woman of ill repute in the Bible, is a sexually insatiable, morally impure, manipulative, black slave woman who tempts men into her bed, threatening the sanctity of the white family. Rather than seeing black women as victims of a system that stole their personal right to bodily integrity, white slaveholding society labeled black women as Jezebels, manipulative sexual temptresses who brought on and deserved their fate. Miles continues on to relate that Chloe's tragic portrayal as a light-skinned woman is a recurring theme in American literature and expounds on the legend of Cleo as well, describing it, too, as a recurring racial stereotype, that of the voodoo priestess. Miles states that it's these themes that draw visitors to the Myrtles, where they can, quote, flirt with the danger of racial and sexual taboos, while never having to really think about human subjection, the corruption of power, and their own voyeuristic complicity. In spite of these assertions, visitors to the Myrtles continue to make claims of encounters with the mysterious. In addition to the apparitions of Chloe and Cleo, guests who have dared stayed overnight in the doll room have reported waking up to antique dolls inexplicably tossed about the room, or their hands and hair being tugged upon by cold, icy hands the size of a young child. Yet whether or not these purported hauntings warrant the designation of America's most haunted home, continue to be debated. But one thing is certain. The stories, legends, and hauntings of the Myrtles provide deep insight into the history, tragedy, and violent cultural tensions beneath the otherwise picturesque view of plantation life in the American South.
My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.